Welcome to the first episode of They Live By Film, a new film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy and I am joined by my co-host Chris Haskell. How are you doing, Chris? Hello. Doing well? Doing good? Doing fantastic. So excited to get jumped into this. Excellent stuff. Well, with this being a new podcast, I thought I'd just do a quick intro just for people to know what we're going to be talking about. Um, Myself and Chris are sort of moderators, members of a Criterion Channel Film Club that uh, started a few weeks ago, well, a few months ago now, at this stage over on the Criterion subreddit. Every week, we just ran, each member sort of picks a a few films, we put it up on a poll, people, the the masses choose what films we watch that week, and then we get together on on a Friday and talk about the film to sort of dissect it, get each other's thoughts. Uh, that's what we're going to be running through on this podcast each week. Um, we're going to be posting every two weeks. Uh, every two weeks, then we're going to be talking about uh, the last two films that we watched. Uh, and we'll we'll make some room in between to talk about some some non-criterion related stuff. You know, we're we're big we're big collectors, me and Chris. So we're going to talk about pickups that we've gotten recently that we've really enjoyed, and just clean up with some any other business at the end. So this week, uh, our first film we're going to be talking about is the Francois Truffaut film, Shoot the Piano Player. And the next film, uh, which is the Japanese film, uh, Tom Popo, uh, which is by Juzu Atami. Um, two very, very popular films. I think you'd agree, Chris, um, which was a really great way to start off the podcast. Yeah, guy, I'm so excited to talk about these. Cool. Well, we might as well jump right in. We're going to start off with Shoot the Piano Player. We watched that one two weeks ago. Um, 1960, French New Wave, Francois Truffaut. It's It sort of almost writes itself when you sort of think about it. Um, yeah. What are, what are your thoughts on this group? What was your, what was your initial? Had you seen it before? No. So I've, um, my sort of introduction to foreign films was actually through uh, Godard was a big part of that. And so just reading through his like Cahir du Cinema and like, I'm sorry for the mispronunciation, like the journal he was a part of and how Truffaut was a part of that. So uh, I I should have seen more Truffaut by now, um, but I've only ever seen 400 Blows prior to this. Um, so I, I was super excited to check out more uh, of his like back, you know, catalog. And I just, I mean, we'll get into it here in a minute, but it just made me want to stop everything I was doing and, and watch the rest. I love the chaos of it. I kind of, I love the the kind of rebelliousness of it. Uh, it was, it was a super fun watch. What about you? Had you seen much of his work? I, I I'd seen this film. I, I saw it a few years ago, um, yeah. about two or three years ago. I, uh, artificial eye, um, put out a, a box set of, of Truffaut films that I picked up cause I wanted to see the 400 blows, but you couldn't buy it as a single disc. So I'm like, screw it. I might as well buy the box set. Um, so I watched the 400 blows. Absolutely loved that. That was great. Um, I'm a big French New Wave guy. I'm like you. I got really into Godard um, when I was about 18. I got, I got really, really into Godard. Um, so obviously, I, I just knew Truffaut because he's like the next. When you think of the French New Wave, you think of Godard, and then you think of Truffaut. They're like the godfathers of it. So um, I looked forward to the, shoot, the piano player. I really enjoyed it the first time, and I enjoyed it again this time. I, I agree. It's it's chaotic in a great way. It It really sums up a lot of what the New Wave is about about sort of taking those Hollywood standards and, you know, sort of turning them on its head and doing things in a bit more of a, a, a DIY style. Um, a lot of it almost seems very, um, very, um, can't think of a word now. Um, just a very off the cuff almost in a way, if you get me. Oh, totally. 
Yeah. You know, I think, um, so I just, by total coincidence, I had watched 400 Blows again, uh, probably like a month ago or so, roughly, um, or at least a month before, before we, this got chosen for the film club. And so, you know, I had this, I had this interesting, uh, uh, I guess, connection of watching his first two films so close together. Um, and I'm fascinated by his philosophy. I've actually meant to already dig into it a little bit more prior to this discussion, but, uh, you know, he, there, there seems to be this sort of trend in his first two films of like inevitability and, and, you know, in 400 blows, he brings up this idea that I, well, at least my perception of it was just kind of like an exploration of, of what happens in, in somebody whose life becomes uh, centered around crime or at least gets exposed to crime and kind of goes deeper and deeper. And I think there's a few moments in 400 blows where you see the character like harden because of some interpersonal stuff, whether it's the relationship with his mom or having to look tough in front of the prisoners. Uh, and it was sort of heartbreaking. You watch this sweet, like young, innocent boy just kind of harden a little bit. And then in uh, one that we're talking about today and shoot the piano player, I thought it was interesting because you see this guy who's basically brought up in crime, right? But he he doesn't really fall into it. He's actually not that good at it. <laughs> um, and he, even as the story tries to reel him back in because his brothers are knuckleheads uh, and, and he gets caught up in this world again, it's just not him. Uh, and, and I thought the way that the film ended with him in front of that piano, um, you know, there, it was actually something like kind of philosophical uh, and, and very kind of uh, poetic almost in the way that that was handled. Uh, but then to your point where you were just talking about some of the whimsy and kind of like just some of the, you know, the um, uh, off the cuff nature, I guess, of the French New Wave, where it felt like they were just almost, I mean, I don't want to, I don't know if this is true, but like, it seems like at times they were kind of writing as they went along and just like recording lot, you know, like a new idea they had, but it was, so there was this fun playfulness to it, but centered around this kind of deeper uh, uh, philosophy that I just, I, I loved, like I, that balance I thought was wonderful. It's a good companion piece to Breathless in a way, because yeah. they are sort of fairly similar in a way. Obviously, I know in, in Breathless, we follow the criminal, whereas obviously um, that the character of Charlie and Shoot the Piano Player is sort of the opposite. Uh, and I agree with you from what you're saying. He he definitely doesn't fall into it. I've, I've never seen a character not want to be in a crime movie as much as Charlie <laughs> does not want to be in a crime movie. Right. He just does not give a toss about what's going on people gangsters looking for his brother i don't care he just he just wants to play his piano yeah. and go home and sleep with his prostitute neighbor and just get on with his life because he's just you and, and it's funny I, I didn't even really met, realize it until you brought it up when we see charlie's backstory nothing about crime is mentioned at all like even though it seems as though he comes from a a criminal or not necessarily maybe a gangster family, but certainly a, a family very entangled in crime. You never see that in his backstory either. It's all about obviously the the um the the sort of tragic love affair aspect and the sort of falling out of out of um the fame of it all. Um but yeah he just he's like he's like the anti film noir lead. He's he he does not want to be in a crime movie and you can tell he just he's always walking away just trying to get out of it. It's only really when when his little brother gets taken that he sort of has to it's he kind of just has to get on with it and get his hands dirty at that point because he's he's been dragged into it to that extent. 
but up until then he he really just tries to avoid it at all costs maybe there's something you just said that is just like connecting uh some some synapses here for me i i it's, he's like really playing with this genre of crime right and and with that character and uh just i wonder if there they must have had some conversations behind the scenes about this idea right with the, with that little club that came out of the the cinema journal because like i feel like that's um uh what is it? is it a woman oh shoot a woman is a woman is that right the Godard film the Godard musical film the, yeah they're kind of like musical not musical right where they never actually sing yeah they never actually sing but it, it has the whimsy of a musical it's it's, it's yeah it's my favorite Godard I love it but it's it, it is yeah. really weird like that yeah and and this kind of has that similar maybe sort of feel of like it's it's a crime film it's a noir it's a gangster film but like it's basically Woody Allen in the lead right <laughs> I mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, so anyways, yeah, it's, it was, I don't know. Yeah. No, no, I, I, that's, that's a good point. It is almost like a, a neurotic Woody Allen character and it's almost like a, it's a crime movie, but it's, it's not a crime movie. And you can, you can almost kind of tell when you watch films like this and like Breathless, you really know that Quentin Tarantino obviously loved the French New Wave because like that scene, all I could remind it of when the scene, when the, when the two gangsters pick up Charlie and Lena and start interrogating them like that that could have been from pulp fiction you know it's because they're, they're not talking about crime they're talking about like sexuality and the role of women in today's world and it, they're literally they, they're in no way they're they're trying to pick up charlie to try and find out where his crook of a brother is but they never actually talk about it they're just they're, they're go off on a complete tangent yeah and yeah that's right and even in that they're like bad criminals right they're, like there's not really any good criminals in the whole movie really no they're they're just these two bumbling guys who just sort of stumble up from one scene to another and yeah it's 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 the bizarrest crime movie ever because i don't even think until until the end which we won't spoil for any listeners who haven't seen it but until the end do we even see any crime we're introduced yeah. to Charlie's brother running. We don't really know why. I I mean, it's not none's coming to mind. It's a great question. I don't think so. Yeah, uh, I think with the little brother, if he was, I mean, not really. He was, or, or wait, the yeah, the younger brother. I guess he was playful and kind of like a knucklehead, but he wasn't. He wasn't actually. Like for all we know, he's a terrible person. We just never seen it happen. Um, <laughs> you know, we we never actually witnessed any. I don't even think if I. Now, again, obviously, it's been two weeks since we saw it, but I don't recall him even mentioning why he was on the run when he came to Charlie asking for help in, in the in the in the bar at the start of the film. No, but I did like that scene because Charlie knew exactly what to do. Right. You can tell it wasn't the first time he ran in the. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's like, just go. Like, this is not his first rodeo <laughs> in terms of like, I really liked the cinematography that that was one part I, I really enjoyed. Obviously, it was shot by Rel Qatar, who's obviously. The sort of he was the he was the dude when it comes to shooting your French New Wave film, especially at the start. Goddard works with him, worked with him a lot as well. Um, it's a very it's a very manic sort of piece in how it's shot. It's a lot of moving cameras, a lot of low light, which is probably down to more budget constraints more than everything. But um, that that last sort of sequence um, towards you know towards the end of the film in the snowy landscape. That that looked gorgeous. That looked like something out of like a a, a Mizuguchi film or something. So like there was definitely a a change of style almost. And I, I feel like Cotard was probably much more classically sort of tuned in than maybe a lot of the direction he got allowed for. 
because obviously when he was working with Godard, he was basically told, here, walk down the road and shoot Anna Karina doing cute stuff. Um, okay. Whereas, I suppose with this film, it kind of it kind of gave him the the opportunity to to maybe show off more of his his more nuanced side. That's a great point. Yeah, that was by far the most beautiful shot in the movie, and it was excellent. Like that would that would hold its own in any uh, film where they're claiming or where they're praising the cinematography. It's it's a great point to bring up, uh, and it actually carried a lot of like. Yeah, like it, that was the only part, moment in the film where it really kind of felt like a crime film too, right? Because it was just the way that, like the fact that you could see all the characters running and moving uh, and you could kind of see like, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. The only reason I'm hesitating is I don't know if we want to spoil it, but just, just basically seeing the incompetence play out, but like still their dedication to like we're criminals. Uh, it, I think it was captured well. Uh, just yeah, by no. framing. Absolutely no, it was it was shot really well. It kind of reminded me. I don't know if you saw, uh, Criterion Channel earlier in the year had a collection of Western noirs, and there was one called Day of or Day of the Outlaw. Yeah, Day of the Outlaw, and it was a great Western, and it was really unique because it was shot in this high contrast black and white, like like to shoot the piano player, who very much in high contrast. Uh, but it was all in a, a snowy, desolate town rather than the sort of dusty westerns you normally see. And it has a similar sort of shootout finale in a snowy landscape. And it really reminded me of that film as well. Um, and I know, obviously, the, the guys at Carries of Cinema, who I've also probably dreadfully mispronounced, um, they were big into their um, into their American B-movies. Mm-hmm. And Nicholas Ray, well, I suppose Nicholas Ray wasn't really a B-movie director, but some of his films were were, were not exactly lights and glimmer of Hollywood. Um, and, and Sam Fuller as well. And I see a lot of Sam Fuller in, in this film as well. I don't know if, if you do as well, um, but I, I see a lot of Sam Fuller in this. I mean, that scene in particular, I yeah, for sure. And I think I, um, they, I'm just pulling up Day of the Outlaw when you said it there. I'm just looking at it now. I really wanted to go try to find this movie. I actually, speaking of Tarantino for a second, uh, that scene in Kill Bill that's done in the snow um, was sort of the first time I, it just registered. It's something clicked in my mind in that scene. Like I had seen snow in movies before, but in my head, snow was more like maybe Jeremiah Johnson or something. Um, and like, it was the first time I had sort of seen that like tension and like, I don't know where snow was almost like a character in the movie, uh, a little bit more. And so I've, I've been a little fascinated with that. So the, I think that's something I was drawn to and, the way this was shot as well that you're helping me realize as we're talking about this now. So I'm going to go seek out day of the outlaw. Uh, it's, it's a great, it's a great film. Again, it's, it's a B movie. It's a film noir, but it's, it's, it's really great. I really enjoyed it. It's a great, great little story. And, and it looks, it looks gorgeous. Like I didn't read too much about the filming of it um, in terms of how much was done exterior versus interior, but there was definitely some of it exterior and it's, it's, it's desolate as hell. I'm not going to lie, but it, it's stunning some of the shots they did in it. So it's a really great film. It, it was pr- actually the only one I watched from that collection. I regret not watching more. I hope, I hope they, they come back around again. Seriously, or there's a box set or something. Um, mm. I, you know, I know that um, I, I'm not saying we have to be done to shoot the piano player, but it, I'm, I'm interested in this. Uh, the, that's a good connection, a kind of good segue into Tampopo, uh, at least on the Western thing. That's probably the only thing that we yeah. can <laughs> to actually segue the two films together was the influence of westerns. 
Absolutely. And I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about that when we get to Tampo later. Um, not most, not honestly, not so much from my end because I didn't really get a lot of the Western um, references that everyone seemed to talk about. But uh, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll get there later on. Um, so which shoot the piano player? Um, so it was 1960. So it was early French New Wave. We only really had a couple, a handful of films sort of prior to 1960 that could be considered part of this, obviously. Truffaut's own 400 Blows. You would have had Alan Rene's uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think even prior to that was Elevator to the Gallows, Louis Mal. And I suppose you could, even though it's not really in the same boat, Bob Le Flambeur um, from Melville, no. you, there's definitely aspects of that that would that you could you could sort of try and move it into into the French New Wave. How do you think this stands out, you know, connected to the other New Wave films that you've seen or even, you know, from that sort of few years? Where, where does this stand for you? The, this is not going to be a direct answer to your question, but I hope I'm going to get the spirit of it. So what the reason I like French New Wave so much was kind of the same reason I like punk. Like it's this this group of musicians or artists that are drawn to they they fully understand a genre and what they're doing is a response to something, right? They're saying like, we're going to respond to traditional Hollywood or traditional cinema. And we think we can do it better or more interesting. And there's like a kind of a rebellious spirit to uh, rebellious spirit to it. And there's like a, there's a sense of like, we're going to make our own rules. Like, like, why would you tell us that we have to play by these rules? They weren't, you know, the people that created the, the rules of the cinema we grew up with, they're not actually gods. Like we, this is a fun format. Like let's see what we can do and expand uh, the format. And so I think that that creativity leads to a lot of brilliance and also a lot of sloppiness and like they kind of work hand in hand together really well. Right. Um, not Bob Flumber. I think that film is technically probably meticulous, but there's, there's a lot of the, I think, the, the what draws me to especially the early part like early 60s uh french new wave is just they're willing to kind of take risks and they're willing to go out there and like just sort of be wrong uh and and i think that I, yeah that's just I, i've been fascinated by their commitment to that you know and i think like the the shoot the piano player specifically there was those three tones that were kind of going on and, and I don't even know, I think I even wrote this and when we kind of like wrote reviews on it, I don't know that it fully meshed together perfectly for me. Like, I wouldn't say this was a perfect film. There was like the, that tone of the, you know, romantic, like hopeless romantic, kind of really nervous lead. Uh, and then there was like sort of this crime film kind of tone. And then there was that philosophical sort of underpinning foundational tone. And they were, I don't know that they always like gelled together well, but taken individually they're these brilliant concepts and like it's fun and there's like a i love the fact that they're you know willing to take the risk to just try it and like see if they can make it work and i think it definitely worked enough to make it like i love the movie uh and that's so when you when you think about like what are some commonalities in in the early french new wave for me that's the first thing that pops to mind is just the willingness to take these big risks and and play and just see what happens Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree. It's definitely about, um, like like you said, uh, not conforming, um, trying to sort of flip things on its head, trying to subvert maybe expectations of, of you know, fans. Like especially, like 
obviously this is this is 1960 so we've just really come out we were sort of maybe five years outside of when film noir sort of started to die down but then you see this maybe black and white black and white crime film and you you have these expectations about what you're going to see and it completely subverts that and uh, yeah the french wave is definitely all about that and it's about the the anarchy of it and rewriting the rules and and you know just sort of taking one thing and and just trying to say something different about it um and so many so many new wave films are even just so different it's hard to even like if they weren't all made around the same time by the same people who sort of knew each other we wouldn't even really connect them like this one i suppose would be would be very similar to maybe like breathless or or band of power you know the sort of more Mm -hmm. crimey ones but Mm -hmm. then on the other hand you would have like sassy dance la metro which is completely unique or right. or pers- probably well, I wouldn't want to say it's my out and out favorite but one of my favorites is uh Varda's Le Bonheur um that's just name that film like incepted my mind it it it, it uh-huh. nearly brainwashed me that film nearly brainwashed me to thinking I was watching a romantic film when it is the absolute opposite it is a horrific film it's like the get out of romantic comedies. That's like yeah. that's the only way I can describe that film. It just it completely reprogrammed my brain to think I was watching this nice schmaltzy romantic film when it's absolutely not. I don't know if you've seen it yourself, so I won't talk too much about it. Mm. But oh my god, that film is incredible. You I have to watch it. it. It's yeah, it's, yeah. It's it's so good. But but again, it's absolutely nothing like this film and it's in a way, French New Wave, you can only you can only really describe it by the era and the sort of common willingness to try and go against the grain and try and do something different. Mm-hmm. With every other sort of, you know, obviously genre or even like film movement, like film noir, like film noir, even though, again, it wasn't even a genre. It was just an era of making darker films sort of post-war. You can tell a film noir. You can they have a certain look it has a certain atmosphere um whereas a french new wave you could literally you don't know what you're going to get when you turn one on it could be could be absolutely anything and that's what i love about the new wave in general um and i agree with this one um it's like you said it's, it's not a perfect film it's hard to make a perfect film very few of them have ever been made um but yeah what i liked about this one is just it's it's willingness to completely subvert the crime genre to give us a film where not a lot of crime even happens and the main character has absolutely no interest in being in a crime film at all. So now we're doing Collection Corner. This is something I'm very excited about because um, I I have, I only say this on the first episode. I won't, I won't, you know, get on a soapbox for every time, but I want this, to, like, I think collecting for me is, has always been something that is, is serves a higher purpose, which is preservation. And I, I love the idea that, that, you know, I sort of, I have some expendable in, disposable income and like the way that I'm going to do it is to help preserve film. Uh, and there's, you know, I own some ones that I don't like <laughs> and that's okay. Um, yeah. Right. Because I want like for me, the collecting is something that where I want there to be a spinoff of blue underground, which becomes Severn films. And then for somebody to get inspired from that movement and then, maybe start, you know, I, I think it's uh, unearthed. Like, anyways, I might have the name wrong, but like, I want there to be this history of people seeing that the business model can work. And then somebody like Arbello's coming out from nowhere and just producing these beautiful restorations and cuts of super obscure cinema that probably wouldn't happen in an era of, of dying media, physical media, but 
because there's a group of, of, and maybe we're all on Reddit, but there's a group of us that are willing to kind of commit to the preservation. So that that's for me what collecting is about. I love it. And uh, so I'm really excited we're getting to talk about these on a, on a, a whatever, a couple of times a month. Mm. Uh, I agree. It's, it's, it's extremely important. Again, like it's great. Like if you have a subscription to the Criterion Channel or Netflix or whatever, I I do. I, I have all the streaming channels. Disney even has me for money, you know. So yeah. like that's all. That's all great. But when you when you buy physical, you, you really are supporting the the restoration, the the amount of work it goes into making sure that not just the films are saved, but the, the history. You know, it's they are a literal slice of history. So uh, I'm in complete agreement there. Physical media collecting it's look it's not everyone can do it like we said we're, we're sort of lucky we have disposable income we, we we can do that which is great um so I, we understand it can't be for everyone it's just not feasible but right. if you can if you can do it's 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 worth it and you will end up uh, peeing off your your significant other who you live with uh, for all the space that you take up <laughs> um cool so what have you picked up recently chris that you love okay so the there's, I think I was telling you a story before we started recording about how I found this really kind of fun video store in Dallas. This would have been in 2002, where I, I started just kind of a side gig with them where I just helped them translate foreign movies. And in exchange, they give me um, free rentals. So I was going through, they had about 15,000 VHS tapes, and I literally started in A. <laughs> and I was just working my way down. And I came across one called Action USA. And I I probably watched it four times the first week that I had it. It was just for, for anybody that's okay with a kind of that so bad it's good movie. It, it has everything. Like the scene that I always kind of give as an example is there's a car chase and this one car runs into a house and the house explodes. It's just madness. And uh, like it, it's from the eighties. It's, you know, synth, like it's just perfect. And I knew for sure that this movie was going to be lost to obscurity because nobody's seen it <laughs> like nobody's seen it like the people that made the film may have not even seen it um and then out of nowhere like right around christmas time so maybe this was santa influenced vinegar syndrome pops out that they're releasing it in their archive collection my head exploded i had to run and tell people on the street like like i live in austin there's a lot of homelessness i probably looked like uh somebody who's sleeping outside i was just running up to people and shaking them and saying they're releasing action usa on blue um and uh, that's a little bit of a uh that's a little bit of exaggeration not much and uh and so that one's coming out i forget if it's december or january but i was 50 50 on getting the uh annual subscription for for vinegar syndrome because it's a penny but uh, when I saw that release come out and them talking about how this year is going to be better, I know they have to say that, but like, I don't care. I was hooked. So I, that actually persuaded me that threw me over the edge to get the subscription. So, uh, so i not only did I get action USA, which is pending and, uh, hopefully shipping soon. Um, and maybe I might just start a whole podcast just on action USA. <laughs> um, but, uh, I'm also now a subscriber for the first time. So I'm very eager to see what that, uh, not, not a completionist. Um, they have one where you can get the sex stuff as well, but for the horror and the exploitation next year, I'm going to be the uh, uh, subscriber. So I'm excited about that. Nice. It sounds dreadfully bad. I, I did. I remember you mentioned it in, um, in in our Discord a couple of weeks ago when you when you found out, and I assume that's when you went on your rampage telling everyone who would listen. 
Um, I did look it up, and it looks it looks dreadful. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna <laughs> sugarcoat it. It looks absolutely horrible, but uh, which which is which is great. <laughs> I I feel I don't know if you've seen a similar trend, but with cinephiles and people who get into cinema. I feel like it always ends up going in two paths. So everyone starts the same. You start off with like Tarantino and Scorsese and Kubrick. Oh, yeah. And then you get more into your foreign stuff. You get into your Godard or maybe some Antonioni or maybe some Osu. And then once you've like seen all the masters, you either go down like really slow cinema. So like where you just watch, That's I'm going to dread, where you just literally just watch like, you know, seven hour movies. Like you just watch Satan Tango like every day, or you just watch absolute schlocky, cheesy crap, and it just seems to go down that route. And I, I'm definitely in the in the schlocky, cheesy crap. I, I love me a a, a a crappy Jalo film, so right. yeah, I'm I'm definitely in that route as well. But I've noticed that with a, a lot of a lot of people who get into cinema, once you've sort of seen all the masters and you've seen all the great films, you've you've made your way through your sight and sound top two fifty. And you just want to, you just want to watch some crap. <laughs> There's the, so yes, totally agree with everything you just said. And I think the reason I went towards the, actually I can do both. So I was blown away. I was not expecting to like Satsun Tango at all. Um, and I did like, I liked it. Like I actually kind of got into it and I think, you know, I, I, I can do both, but, but if I, you know, if it's the end of the day and I'm tired, you know, I'm I'm putting on Action USA. Like I'm not, <laughs> you know, like, like I have to be in the mood for that. And I think for me, it's like, it's just I'm always fascinated by like how did this movie get financed? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they all have a story. Um, but there was this great British movie called I Bought a Va- uh, I Bought a Vampire Motorcycle, and the story of how it got financed is hilarious because like it was they were working on a TV show. It was a hit TV show. And they had they did like a location scouting for the show, and they had the lease on it for an extra two weeks. So they stole BBC equipment, they stole BBC actors, um, and they stole the location. And they just like shot a movie for free, basically. And Crazy. like it, when you start getting into these low budget movies, you hear these kind of stories like that that are sort of inspiring for for young artists. I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to make too much of it. I just enjoy it. Yeah. But I also really love the finance stories. That's cool. And. I suppose that sort of leads me into uh, into my sort of collection corner um, by uh, which is again sort of leans on movies that maybe are not really all that great B movies <laughs> sort of kind of thing. I'm very excited about mine. It was an indicator release, only just came out at the end of the month, and I was waiting for it. And I've only just even gotten into indicator over the last couple of months, and they, they their box sets have me hooked. This was a, a new box set for a new a new sort of running collection are going to be doing all focusing on columbia noir so this box set was is columbia noir number one uh, volume two is going to be out in february which i also have on pre-order ready to go um there's some like I, i'm not going to lie to you i've never heard of any of these films there's six films in it i've never heard of any of them they all sound crazy and great in fact even the directors i've only heard of one of the directors so uh, the films in the list it's escape in the fog which is uh, 1945 bud boticker boticker um no no meter meter um we have the undercover man which is 1949 which is joseph h lewis which if you're a fan of b movies from that era you'll you'll know joseph h lewis um he he made a quite a few um quite a few b movies uh, of that time that have been reevaluated as 
uh, as really sort of good film noirs. Uh, you have Drive a Crooked Road from Richard Quine, which is 1954. Uh, Five Against the House, which is Phil Carlson, 1955. The Garment Jungle, which was co-directed by Vincent Sherman and Robert Aldrich, whose name sounds familiar. And I, I, I feel like I've definitely seen a film or at least heard the name Robert Aldrich before. That was 1957. Then finally you have the lineup from Don Siegel in 1958. So really sort of getting towards the end of the noir era uh, with those. So you, you really have, it's it covers sort of 13 years uh, of film noirs from Colombia. And, you know, Colombia and noir, they, they go hand in hand together. When you think of film noir, pretty much all the, the, the maybe the cooler ones will be from Colombia. You probably have some like maybe bigger, more famous ones from other studios, but Colombia are kind of known for the, the, the cooler ones the sort of yeah. more edgier ones and from yeah. from my experience um so I, i'm looking forward to cracking into those i literally only arrived um it arrived yesterday it arrived in the post yesterday so uh, i'm gonna be cracking into those during the week i cannot wait it's gonna be fun especially when the weather turns and you're kind of have to be inside and you got a hot, your hot cocoa or whatever hot beverage and just like i don't know i love it i love noir for that this time of year Oh, well, I'm Irish, so hot whiskey for me. There we go. There it is. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> uh, can't beat a hot whiskey in November, or in December, actually, in fact. Um, yeah, so I- I'm looking forward to that one anyway. Yeah. Cool. So uh, we're going to talk about our second film from the Criterion Film Club, uh, which is the comedy, erotica, western, mystery, crime, I think you could kind of put it under any genre, uh, by Juzo, Juzo Itami, uh, which is uh, the beloved Tom Popo. Um, I think this is like, if, if you are, if you listener are in any way part of the Criterion subreddit, not a day goes by without somebody mentioning Tom Popo in some way, shape, or form. It's kind of like one of these sort of magical little weird films that that just it should not have worked. It shouldn't be a good film. It 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 really shouldn't be. It has no right to be as good as it is. Um, but it really it really just it's it has something for everyone is the best way I can put it. Um for me, going into this film, everyone was talking about the Western aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a ramen Western. There's so okay. many. It's basically like a Western film. Like I've even seen like threads where people are like looking for recommendations on Westerns. And there's Tom Popo with 65 upvotes. And I'm like, how come whenever I look up this film, it's just about ramen? Why are people calling this a Western? Um, and, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not a big, I'm not a big Western watcher. Um, I've seen some spaghetti westerns which obviously where the ramen western uh title comes from yeah. uh like i've seen like the man with no name trilogy um oh, back, back, to the, back to the future three does that count yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's pretty much where my knowledge of, of westerns sort of starts <laughs> and begins so i didn't really get a lot of the references um the character of goro to me i don't know if everyone else sees this but he looks exactly like charles bronson in oh. once upon a time in the west he, he's like the spitting image of him um, which I, I, I took that as that was my little reference that I picked up from Westerns. I really didn't pick up a whole lot else to me. And I mentioned this in my review. This was much more like Twin Peaks for people who love food. That, that was that was just what came to me when I was watching this film, the way it meanders and sort of jumps between different plots. And they all sort of have a, a common underlying theme about the relationship with food. And because they're just some of them are just so random. 
but also they have the crime tinged ones like the 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 gangster in white who's a bit too much into food um and the the guy impersonating the professor and all these sort of little little stories that crop up it, it really just reminded me of like twin peaks and i I'm, I'm a huge twin peaks fan and a david lynch fan and, and i i would be remiss if, if david lynch had never seen this film because even some of the music and some of the scenes was almost like an, an angelo badalamenti score very sort of synthy and and sort of, some aspects are very brooding and then you go back to the scenes with tom popo and the guys are trying to help her make good ramen <laughs> and you're sort of brought back into this sort of nice little nice little scene and it, it was it was a really it was a really intriguing watch like uh, like I'll be, I'll be the first to admit i sometimes get a little bit distracted when i'm watching a movie you know if if a scene's going on too long or something like that i'm, I'm, I'm i'll start to drift a little bit yeah. but with this one you don't really get a chance to as soon as you begin to drift to, oh here's a whole new scene and whole new characters and a whole new scenario going on um, oh man, there's so much to talk about, but just because you said I brought up the Western thing. So I don't really, I mean, I don't, I haven't seen like, like kind of a lot of Hollywood Westerns. I guess I, I know of them a lot. I've probably seen a few, but I've seen a lot of spaghetti Westerns. So that's kind of more my reference. Um, and it's really the character, uh, the main character of Goro that I think is for me is what really jumped out. His whole mannerisms, like the, the way he, you know, did not really fall in love with with the the woman like it, he was there to get a job done they like his his whole kind of personality the way that he carried himself um you know he was invincible like th there was just a lot of parallels that i think in him that was for me that was really where the western thing was it was all it was kind of all channeled through him so I'm, i'll have to go read some of those other reviews that say this is just a straight western um to see what if people are picking up on more than that um but you know that, that for me that was like it was basically all through his character um, oh yeah you, you can tell even by his i suppose his costume you know he pretty much was walking around like a like a cowboy pretty much yeah um, um, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that no again he was he was goro was the he was the main jump out point for me from a from a western standpoint you could you know he goes around with a freaking cowboy hat like you can't really <laughs> you, you can't really say he's not like a western character so i'm going to um yeah, and then to the second thing you said, I hope I don't get kicked off this podcast in the first episode. I've never seen Twin Peaks. I'm just wow. going to throw it out there. No, look, bully for you. I would love to have never seen Twin Peaks and then get, then get to watch it. So <laughs> that's that's only a positive because now you get to watch it. So that's great. I'm definitely going to. Yeah, I've um, I, I can't not. I mean, it's yeah. Anyways, I'm I'm slowly like I want to see Lynch's filmography in order. Um, for no other reason than I'm just fascinated by this guy, and like I'd love to see kind of how he evolves. Um, so I'm not I'm not too long before I start getting into that. But um, uh, so anyway, that I don't have too much to add as far as your Twin Peaks analogy, but I love it, and I hope and and it sounds amazing. You you will as soon honestly as soon as you watch Twin Peaks, you will you will go, wow, Adam really hit this on the the nail of the head here because or the head of the nail I should say, um, because even just the vibe. The vibe is so Twin Peaksy, and I won't talk too much about Twin Peaks. Obviously, I don't want to alienate you, um, but you, you'll get me as soon as you see Twin Peaks. You'll 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 know exactly what I mean. If I'm doing my Action USA podcast, you can start a Twin Peaks podcast, and we can <laughs> talk well. But uh, <laughs> I think there's probably a, a lot more Twin Peaks podcasts than there are Action USA ones. So yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I'm, I like to swim in the clean waters here. But um, so um, yeah, 
the, the thing that really jumped out to me is because I was trying to wrap, like the thing that I always do whenever I'm uh, just writing about a film is like, like I try to distill in my head, like, is there any common themes or anything that I can like, in, what ties this movie together, right? Like what, what is the thing for me that like ties this together? Uh, and I was really struggling with tempo though. <laughs> like, I mean, obviously it's a story about the ramen, but like how do all these other side stories fit in? And like, like, you know, it's, I don't think this is just like a, like a Jerry Zucker film or something where it's just like randomness and comedy for the sake of it. Like I really thought there was kind of a unifying theme. Um, and so what finally something, I was just like staring at the IMDb page, just trying to think about it. And I, and I remembered that on the, on the subtitling, uh, it, it translated Tampopo into dandelions and it got me going down this whole thread of like, I wonder why they chose that title. Like, what is that? Like, you know, and who knows? I mean, I didn't get a chance to ask the director, but uh, <laughs> in researching what a dandelion is, like it's not a weed, but everybody thinks it's a weed and it's a like this kind of beautiful flower, but it it's, it's a really like rough kind of like, like it's a hard worker. It's like, you know, some, it's like a flower that kind of like came out of nowhere and like it's, you don't expect it and like it's this beautiful flower and like you they can grow anywhere and like it's it's just it so people think of it as a weed right because it's sort of uh minus the, the beautiful flower part it has all the other characteristics of a weed um whereas as far as how people think about it and it kind of started the story kind of started to come together for me as far as like a unifying theme under dandelion and then in one of the random rabbit trails that i was on i saw a picture of a japanese dandelion um and it was exactly like the restaurant at the end of the film. So after it goes through the transformation, it's white, it's all white. It's this beautiful kind of striking white flower with just the yellow. In this case, the lettering, Tampopo was in yellow, but um, it, was, it was just, it was a dead ringer for a Japanese dandelion. So I was like, okay, this is definitely an example of me seeing what I want to see. <laughs> I'm going to go with it. Uh, and so I, uh, you know, I think that, that's what really jumped out to me was that there's this, uh, what I, what I kind of loved is like a, a consistent theme that pulls this movie together for me was, you know, the, the, the woman uh, is um, the woman's name is Tem Oh, Temple, of course. Temple, yeah. And like, you know, she is coming out of nowhere. She's not respected. She's this is, and this is her story of, of, of blossoming right into this wonderful uh, chef. And um, I think all the, the way that, um, the uh, director chose to sort of tie everything uh, or the way that these stories, sorry, let me start over. Um, so that's for the main character. Now as for the rest of the movie, director Atami kind of, I think the way that he used all these stories together was the unifying theme was food, obviously, right? So this is sort of like people's relationship with food. Uh, and and the, the, this is, he's telling one story but reminding us that there's like this really wide swipe of, of uh, people's interactions with food and people's experience with food, uh, which some of it was erotic, right? Some of it was funny and some of it was really hard to watch. Like the turtle scene was super hard to watch. Oh yeah. Um, and not cool. Like I'm pretty no. sure it was a live turtle. <laughs> I'm pretty sure as well. I, 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 was, I, was, I was supposed to look it up afterwards and I completely forgot until you mentioned it, but yeah, it's definitely not a nice scene to watch. No, right. It's horrible, but like if the theme is food, then when you're in these foodie conversations, the topic that never gets really brought up is slaughterhouses, right? Like that's not really fun to talk about when you're preparing a steak. <laughs> no. 
And so maybe, I don't know, it could be, that's one way I was kind of rationalizing this choice. It was, could potentially just be around as a reminder to the audience of like, Hey, this all comes from somewhere. Like, you know, uh, anyway. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a great thread to pick up on because obviously, like you said, food, it's all, it's great when it's on your plate and, you know, they bring it out in the restaurant and it looks gorgeous, but you know, the food and the food industry especially has uh, a not so nice side, you know, it's, you know, obviously, you know, you have your, your places that try to be, you know, fair trade and, you know, try and treat animals humanely and everything like that. But for the most part, the food industry is, is not the, they're not the nicest guys in the world. And you don't really want to think about, like you said, you know, how, how the steak comes to be a steak. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting thread that you picked up there. I hadn't really picked on that myself when I was watching it, but that that makes more sense now as to why so many of these not so nice scenes were included because I've never seen a film that made me salivate and then horrified so quickly one after another. So right. many scenes, it's just some of the food just looks incredible. Like the first, the first almost little, well, I suppose it's probably, <laughs> now I'm realizing it's like the third little story, but at the start when you have, uh, Ken Watanabe's character, I can't remember his character, Goro's friend, uh, mm -hmm. when you have his character reading the book in, in, in the truck about yeah. this guy who's learning to eat ramen perfectly rather than obviously what they end up doing, which is learning how to prepare ramen perfectly. But that mm -hmm. scene when the, when the guy is learning to eat ramen perfectly, I've never, I've never even really had ramen, but oh my God, that looked gorgeous. Well, I would, I would hop into a bowl of that like it was it was incredible looking but then there's mm -hmm. other films like like the turtle one for example um, and the ones surrounding a white a white suited gangster which i won't talk too much about but there's films involving a white suited gangster that are are, are not so appetizing to watch right, um yeah. but yeah but i suppose but that's 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 the food industry though like it's great when it's all prepared and in front of you and it looks gorgeous but you know sometimes it has to go through a bad process to, to get that way so that 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 idea of of the sort of taking the good with the bad good. yeah maybe yeah i mean you know I, I don't know if this is um i don't mean to say that this is necessarily a japanese thing because there's a lot i don't know about that culture but takashi miike does that a lot in his films like i mean not specifically with food but he constantly shows the good and the bad like you know if, if he's ever showing beauty he's going to show that the, the dark side or the other side as well. Uh, and, and I think a lot of his films, what I, the, I could also make a Miyake podcast. I'm obsessed with that. <laughs> but the, 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 um, uh, what the unifying theme that I think that I like about his work is that he really makes you think about how you feel on something in the balance. Like he's going to present both sides and like, it's up to you to decide how you feel in the balance. Um, and, and that's something that, that I think that, that this Tampopo did for me sort of like you have the beautiful food, the amazing food. Some of it's really hard to watch. Some of it's just kooky <laughs> and like, uh, but like, what is it in the balance, you know? And that's anyways, that's, that's sort of how, how this was uh, played out for me. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. Um, I suppose with a, with a film full of side plots and subplots and plots within plots, well, outside the main plot of Tampopo, did you have a particular, favorite segment that you enjoyed the most or one that jumped out at you the most? Um, great question. So there's, there's two that really come to mind and, I, and I'm curious to hear yours as well. I hope they don't overlap because this is like mm -hmm. something a whole nother uh, hour just on, on the side plots. But 
there, the, the scene where the, the women are, uh, there's a group of women that are sort of like learning how to eat noodles without making a sound. And they're learning how to do it like Westerners do. Maybe even specifically Americans. I can't. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Specifically Americans. And then there's an American eating noodles like a maniac and just slurping <laughs> like the water going everywhere. And they're like, well, we're just going to watch him. <laughs> and, uh, and, and just the lady was dying inside. Uh, the, the teacher was dying inside. That really made me laugh. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know if this counts as a subplot per se, but one of the other, my favorite things that he did outside of the main story was there was two times. So one of the times is when the, the main, one of the main characters, Goro, was fighting uh, one of the other people that winds up becoming a friend of the chef. Yeah, uh, I remember. Yeah. The sort and, of drunk and, guy. Yeah. And the camera pulls out and you have this moment where you realize that it's just these two random guys fighting underneath the highway overpass and there's just cars going by. I laughed really hard in that scene. And then. At the end of the film, um, I don't. I hope this is not a spoiler. I don't. I don't think it's a spoiler. Whatever happens in the movie, they wind up driving off in a truck, and as soon as they start driving off, it also pulls out, and it, it, you sort of get the sense that in those two scenes, I, I just felt like the the uh, director was saying, like, "Hey, look, like these are just stories that are happening. They all make up this big city." They're all interesting. To, like if you if you zoom in and focus on any of them, they're super interesting and like there's just you know wild stuff that's happening. But as a whole, it's just like another quiet day in a city. And, and I and I I don't know that just made me laugh and I, I thought it was a, a kind of a fun observation. Yeah, no, definitely. I I agree on that front. Um, I agree with both. Uh, the spaghetti scene is actually one of my favorites as well. Um, purely like you're saying, you know, the they're being taught to to eat like like Americans, um, in a very specific way. Um, and then they're they're watching an American eat it in the complete opposite way they're being told to, uh, so obviously they're they're going to follow the actual American. But that's a it's an interesting point that you make about the zooming out. Um, yeah, like obviously we've seen so many different stories. It, it makes sense for the for the director to to pull focus on the fact that there is a wider world out here. You know, this is like you said, just one sort of small story, one cog in the wheel that keeps the world turning. Um, it, the obviously I mentioned the spaghetti scene because that was also a favorite of mine. Uh, the other favorite of mine um, was another. I think it's actually set in the same restaurant. It, it happens just before that. It's where the, all the businessmen are are in and they're ordering food off a off a French menu. It's it's it is hilarious. Yeah. Um, you have these four very sort of stoic businessmen and this one younger guy who seems like an intern or something like that. And they're all just berating him the whole time, um, and they sit down there. They're, the the waiter comes in and asks what they want, and the first guy orders his food. And he's very sort of particular about what he wants, and all the rest of the guys they just they just pick up, they just pick the exact same thing. Oh, I'll have one of those. I'll have one of those, and they order it all in the exact same way. And it's a very basic dish. And then it comes around to the to the intern, um, uh, who picks off the most just the most sort of high high class food he knows exactly what he wants exactly how it's cooked he knows exactly what wine he wants uh-huh. and it, it pans into the directors who are literally i don't mean they're red faced they are they are literally red faced i'm pretty sure they painted these guys red to sort of show off their embarrassment and their anger that this this intern was able to to uh, to know a hell of a lot more about food than those guys did and and both scenes i found really funny and i got thinking about them yesterday because uh, I was out um, 
I was out for a meal yesterday with my friends for the first time in in a, in a long time. If as you can tell by my lyrical accent, I am from Ireland, whereas obviously Chris is from America. Uh, here in Ireland, we came out of our lockdown uh, this week, uh, so we we're, we were able to go out to restaurants and stuff like that. So uh, me and my friends went to an Italian restaurant, and both scenes just came back to me because I, I had ordered I, I had ordered some um, some um, so, some spaghetti carbonara, and it came with a spoon, and I was trying to to twist up my spaghetti the way that the teacher is trying to teach the Japanese girls how to eat spaghetti properly. And I was trying to do it and I couldn't figure it out. I was making a complete mess. And I thought, well, no wonder these girls just followed the American guy. This is a, this is a pain in the neck to try and roll your spaghetti, your spaghetti up this way. And then just before that, when everyone was actually ordering their food, the other scene came back to me because I was, with, I was out with, there was eight of us in total. There was me, my three best friends from school and all of our girlfriends were out. And we were sort of split across two tables because we weren't all allowed to sit together. We were sort of four and four beside each other. And four of them on the other table all ordered the same thing. And they literally went around the table in order the exact same way it happens in the film. The first guy was, I will have this, you know, some some chicken and prawn pasta. And they were like, oh, I'll have that as well. I'll have that as well. I'll have that as well. And I was just I was just quietly laughing to myself because they would have no idea what this is about. They're not really into film. And I was just I was just quietly chuckling to myself like this is just like Tampo, but this is crazy. Um, so th- those are my those are my two two favorite scenes. And I suppose they're the ones that just came back to me because obviously it, it literally only happened last night. Um, and I was just having a good chuckle to myself about it. Perfect. Oh, it's great. Um, yeah, I, I mean, gosh, I'm trying to think. I mean. I feel like I could talk about Tampopo forever. I mean, you you were on that that Discord chat with me when when I first saw it. I just I was like I think I said I was like a kid at Christmas, but I just wanted to talk about this movie. I was like cuz I, you know, for me like I am always drawn towards fun surrealism. Like mm-hmm. I struggle a little bit with the more artsy surrealism, maybe like I hate to use the word pretentious, that's not really fair, but like I don't like Jodorowsky as much as Terry Gilliam, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I get that. It's sort of like more of a, you're more of a Zazie Dan's La Metro guy. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. And so, like, I'll I, I'll watch Jodorowsky. I have the set. <laughs> I'll get to it. <laughs> um, but, but I'm going to be more of a, anyways, I just like that. Like, I like the Wozzy Chess Haas kind of movies. And, like, this just to me felt like that fun surrealism. Like, yeah. Uh, and, and I just, it just spoke to my soul, like on a deep level, like I love this damn movie. <laughs> uh, so we're coming to our last segment now, uh, which we're just going to call any other business. If you've ever been in a, in an office meeting, you'll know what that means. We're just going to tie up some loose ends. So, uh, obviously we had some fun talking about, uh, shoot the piano player, talking about Tom Popo and a few of our pickups. So we're, we're just going to talk about just something that we've seen recently. It doesn't have to be Criterion. Doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be good. It's just something you've seen recently that that you liked, and you you just want to give it a, a quick shout out. So uh, I'm just going to do mine real quick. Um, I, I watched a film and I looked it up beforehand because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to make all all the American listeners jealous. It is available both Region A and Region B on, on Arrow, so don't worry. It's a a 1948 film by a guy called Adri- a- Abraham Polanski, who only made a handful of films because he was blacklisted. And it's called Force of Evil, a film noir. And it's like the most poetic film noir. The The dialogue is incredible. The it's very unique in a way because the the main character isn't even like a good guy. It's not like he's a good guy trying to fight the mob. He he works for the mob. He's a he's a lawyer for a major gangster. And I won't get too much into the film because obviously I know we're sort of coming towards the end. But um, like the plot is just incredible. The the dialogue is is incredible. 
But really, the end for me, or the best part for me, is the ending. And I'm not going to talk about what actually happens in the end, just more so from a cinematography point of view. They, they're shooting it with the characters sort of in isolation along the, the Hudson River. And honestly, I, I thought for a minute, is, Anton, is Antonioni here in New York making a film? It reminded me so much of like his, of like La, La Ventura or, or La Clice or, or something like that. It's just the way the characters are filmed in isolation is just it's it's next level it, it was it was ahead of its time it, it's something you would more associate with the with, with a 1960s sort of italian or french film not a not a, a film noir b movie from the from the late 1940s and you, you don't have to take my word for how good it is martin scorsese has also talked about how amazing this film is and how much it influenced his career and he he actually bought a print of it when he started getting big and he put it on for for his friends like Coppola and Lucas and all those. And he used to show this film to people to sort of try and get people to realize how much of a masterpiece this is. And it's, it's really great. It's available from Arrow Academy um, as part of their box set. They did uh, four film noir classics, force of evil masterpiece underseen, underappreciated needs to be seen a lot more. Wow. What a great, what a great summary. I'm super excited to go check that out now. <laughs> um, um, so mine just happened last night. I'm still real. I'm still reeling from this experience. So uh, I watched a film. It's called Belladonna of Sadness. Mm. Japanese movie, um, 1973. Um, okay. So this director, uh, his name is Aichi Yamamoto, and he did Astro Boy and Kimba the White Lion. So real popular anime, kind of like he's the guy that kind of set the standard um, and a lot of the creative, uh, I guess, people behind the scenes that worked on those movies were the ones that set the standard for like uh, the big eyes in anime and like a lot of the very foundational sort of animation standards um, that I am not an expert on. I've probably seen three anime in my life. Um, but I, they, this was the group that sort of built this whole industry kind of on their backs, right? Astro Boy was one of the first ones. Um, and then uh, there was a couple more, Thousand and One Nights and Cleopatra. And then out of nowhere comes Belladonna of Sadness. So this is a, in his words, I was watching the, the special features after I saw it because I couldn't believe what I just watched. In his words, he said when he was trying to get people to come over and do this project with him, the way he described it was, it's porn, but it's a pure love story. And so it's, it's this animated movie and the animation style is, uh, if you can imagine it, it's, you only ever see exactly what they want you to see. So a lot of times it's half of a face or a lot of times there's nothing on the background or it's a very minimal background artistically um, until they want to. So every single thing that happened is tied to an emotion that's happening on screen. Um, and it's not, it's just like, it's not, so this is not safe for work. Uh, part of the podcast here. There's nothing I can say about this movie. <laughs> I, it's like PG, but like essentially it's this story of a woman who just, it, it's sort of a, it's secretly a feminist film. So it's a story of a woman who just gets absolutely brutalized by the leaders of her uh, kingdom or, 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 or city kind of area region. And her response to this abuse is to use it kind of as a way of, of empowering those that she loves. So her, so her uh, husband or fiance um, to help him. And then there's, there's a devil that comes in and, and offers to help pick her out of this um, trauma. 
And so she kind of makes a deal with the devil and uh, not surprisingly, like it doesn't go exactly as she had hoped. And, but at the same time, so she's using all of these horrible things that happened to her as a way of um, building up and like, and like, and like helping the people in her life. And so she's kind of this hero in a sense. Um, And I I saw it because it was an Arbelos release. And I don't know how much, are are you familiar with Arbelos? I was about to say, I, I, I would looked this film up because I saw someone post about it and I thought it looked great. And then I saw it was Arbelos and, but obviously they don't do region B and I don't think there's a region B release of it. So I was, I was vaguely aware of the film mainly by the title because the title is like a really cool title of a film. Um, So I was on, I I didn't even know it was, it was animated. I'll be honest with you. Um, It's just, it is, first of all, I I don't really, I guess, I don't want to say I have a mental block against animation. I love Disney. Um, But for some reason, I just, I don't have a lot of experience with anime. I just, it hasn't come up yet, whatever. But this animation is stunning, like it's beautiful. And it's very, very, uh, yeah, it's very unique. The anime, just the animation style. The story itself is just gut-wrenching. Like it's brutal to watch what this woman goes through and they don't shy away from anything. Mm. Um, And because it's animation, they're able to do things like show blood, like gushing out instead of, you know what I mean? They're just, they, they paint the picture of just like the terror of what's happening. But underneath this is this, really like beautiful and like strangely soft and sweet love story. And it's just a confusing movie. I, I'm not saying that you should watch it. I don't know what to say about this film. It just, <laughs> like I said, it still has me reeling. Like it's beautiful. Uh, uh, who's the guy that played Frodo? Elijah Wood um, has like a whole thing about why he helped finance the, the, the restoration of the film and like kind of bringing it out to, because it's so Arbelos has a partnership with this company called Cinelicious Picks. I don't know the, the exactly the relationship, uh, and they picked up this film, which was produced by Elijah Wood's company. Um, and so he kind of goes into his version of why he he wanted to, to restore this film and where the beauty that was found in it. Um, the funny thing I'll just share really quickly as we end up: the director said he was really mad when they marketed the film because it, this was his reaction to the Yellow Submarine which it's not that, but anyways, that's a separate discussion. Um, but he was promised it would play like, and he would kind of have control of the marketing of it. So he made this film as a, like a response to the yellow submarine. And um, it, when they, when he, the first day he went to go see it in the movie theater and, and it said from Astro boy to Belladonna. And he was like, why would they market it this way? Like <laughs> the Astro boy fans are not coming to watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, so he was like going. He had like a big rant on the on the DVD or the Blu-ray about um, what a terrible decision that was and how it hurt the film. But um, but it did. Anyways, yeah, it's just a, it's just a, a horribly terrible, beautiful movie, and I don't know what to do with it. So that concludes our first episode of They Live by Film. Thank you, everyone who has been listening. Um, so just to recap, we talked about Shoot the Piano Player. We talked about Tam Popo as well as other things. If you want to join in on the discussions we have on Reddit, then go to the Reddit uh, Criterion subs, which is just reddit.com forward slash criterion. Every Friday, we post up a poll of the upcoming week's films. And then we obviously discuss the film that we spoke about last week. So please feel free to join us on there. In the meantime, uh, you can find us on Twitter at They Live By Film. Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd. Uh, my name is Adam Lundy. My username is TheOwls23. 
and you can find Chris on his own subreddit because he's he's that special. Uh, you can find him at reddit.com forward slash personal history of film, where he's always posting up his thoughts there as well. Um, so yeah, we're going to wrap it up. Chris, thank you very much for joining me, and yeah, we'll speak to everyone soon. Take care. Thank you. It's been fun.